guys ready for Christmas? Who's doing the countdown? Getting there? <laughs> All right. Your dogs are. All right. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm glad you guys are here this morning to celebrate this uh, day of celebration with of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, as I mentioned earlier. This is something that we do every Sunday. We don't just wait for... Um, we don't wait for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Okay. But this month is particularly very important as we start to recognize the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, just so that you understand that you know, I think most of you, or at least some of you, probably have an idea that Jesus really wasn't born on December 25th. Amen. Okay, they didn't have um, birth certificates back then. They didn't have calendars in a sense like we do. They were, there was no way of marking it on a day planner or on their phones or anything of that nature. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, there's only two birthdays that are actually recognized and remembered. Uh, one, of, one Pharaoh, King Pharaoh, he had a birthday. And the other one, King Herod, both ungodly kings, yeah. both yeah. against the Jewish nation. And uh, they were celebrated uh, in honor of them. And uh, so we, uh, we don't really recognize December 25th as the birth of Christ. However, we do recognize the birth of Christ. Amen? We don't know when it was. Uh, there's a lot of reasons as to why it could not have been in the middle of winter. Number one, it's cold in the middle of winter. And the Bible tells us that uh, the, the governor, the, the king at that time, he pronounced the census. And everybody had to travel from where they were living at to their hometown. And back then, they didn't have the commute of and the convenience of buses and trains and planes and cars. They did it by foot, by donkey, and so they traveled. So in order to get an accurate census, most rulers would not do it in, in a very inconvenient time. Uh, also... We know that the shepherds were out keeping watch over the flock at night. Yeah, yeah. Uh, once again, it was very difficult to keep watch over flock in the middle of winter, um, yeah. and it just wasn't a very appropriate time. So there, there are a lot of other indications that give us the idea that maybe he was born closer to uh, the springtime, maybe, you know, more, or maybe some people even say uh, September of that, of that year. There are a lot of ways of trying to figure this out. The important thing is that he invaded God himself, Incarne, incarnation is what it's called. He came, God himself became flesh and entered into this world. He invaded this planet. He came to bring the good news of the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, the very first thing Jesus Christ said when he started off his ministry in Acts chapter, excuse me, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says uh, that he's come to bring the good news. He said, repent. And believe the good news. That was his message. That, and through everything else that he did, that has been the message from the very beginning of time in the Old Testament to today. The good news of Jesus Christ and the good news of God is that God has provided for us a sacrifice. Now, it's important to know that there are a lot of things that will take us away from the incarnation of Christ. Uh, one of the things, of course, is, is you heard, I mean, there's, there's a Santa Claus out there. There's a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer out there. There's a uh, Jingle Bells and Frosty the Snowman. Well, all these other caricatures, and, and they're, they're harmless in a way, and they are. And, and we have them, and we decorate, and we do such things. We, we don't recognize that in our church building. I know many of you might have some in your home, and, and that's, that's perfectly fine. You're doing something that is with the holidays. But I pray that as you do this... I pray that as you remember the birth of Christ, that you remember the birth of Christ. Yeah. It's all yeah. about Jesus. Yeah. 
Uh, and and yeah. I think that today's message is, is timely to start off the Advent, start off the new month, start off this time. We have 20 days left until Christmas to help us to remember that we are new creations. Yeah. This is Paul's letter to the people in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very carnal, very pagan, very spiritual uh, place. The city was very spiritual. A lot of people that, that went to churches or went to gatherings, spiritual gatherings. And I'll explain that here in just a little bit. But there was only one true church, the Church of Jesus Christ, that was planted by Paul himself. And, and when, when a person, when the people in Ephesus became Christians, they professed Christ as their Lord, they were born again in the same manner as you yourself. When you profess Christ, you are born again. Okay, now that's, and, and it's a transformation that takes place in the basic nature of who you are. The change is even more basic basic and radical than the change that'll take place at death. At death, we will become like him. And there is a transformation that will happen. But when you were born again, if you were genuinely born again, if you recognize that you have offended a holy God, that if you recognize that God is the one that is in control and that you stand under the wrath of God, if you recognize that one day God is going to unleash his wrath upon the ungodly, just the bad people, but people that will not submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we're going to walk over some of the things that make the old life and the new life, how you should be responding. And once you've come to that realization, what God has done is he's given you a new personhood, a new person, a new self. You're not the old self. You are a new self. You don't have these two fighting against each other. The old is gone, the Bible says, and the new has come. Salvation is not a matter of improvement or perfecting of what has previously been existed. You know, and, and I've said this many times before, that we are not perfect. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. And, and the excuse is, well, I'm not perfect. Well, that's not an excuse. That's a condemnation. Recognizing that you're not perfect is a good thing. Recognizing that you're not good is a great thing because only Jesus Christ can take away that sin that is making you un. Uh, unperfect or unable to communicate and to meet with God. And salvation doesn't just make you better. Salvation is is not adding more stuff upon you. It transforms you. It changes you. It literally makes you into a whole new different being. The New Testament speaks of believers having a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship, a new power, a new knowledge, a new wisdom, new perceptions, new understanding, a new righteousness, a new love, new desires, new citizenships, and many other new things that the Bible talks about. You are brand new. And when Paul is talking to the people in Ephesus, he says, because you are brand new, You need to act like a brand new person, not like the old you. In Romans 6, verse 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a beautiful picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and also the death, burial, and resurrection of the new believer. The old is gone into the water and the new has come. The water doesn't cleanse you. The water doesn't make you holy. The water doesn't make you pure. The water, all that does, it's a symbol of your old life being drowned away, taken away, and your new life coming back up. At the new birth, the person becomes, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, anyone who is in Christ he is what? 
A new creation. Exactly. You're a new creation. Not another creation or two creations, but you are a brand new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's, it's not simply receiving something new, but becoming something new. You don't get something. Like at Christmas, you're going to get a new uh, jacket or a new set of shoes or a new, some new toys or tools. No, it becomes brand new. You become brand new. Galatians chapter 2, if you remember, it said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. As a new believer, that is your position. As a believer, you are a brand new individual. The new nature is not added to the old nature, but it replaces it. And there's this idea that there's this fight among the two. Oh, my old nature wins sometimes. My new nature wins sometimes. And there is this battle going on. And, and God didn't make you a spiritual schizophrenic. You're not a Jekyll and Hyde that's trying to feed one or the other. You're new. You're new. You're new. Amen. You're brand new. Amen. And so people ask, so, so then why is it that I keep sinning then? What, what, what is that? Why, why is it that I sin and it still resides in my flesh? The Bible says that sin resides in your flesh so yeah. that we are inhibited and restrained. It's not the spirit, but it's the flesh that is sinful. Amen. And the flesh is like a coat. The flesh is something that we have to take off. The flesh is, and the Bible is clear about that. It says here, and now, in, in Romans 8.23, and now, not, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. And the, base, the biblical terminology says that Christians don't have this two nature, but the one. And in Romans chapter 6, 14, it says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you're under grace. You're no longer the old man. You're no longer the old being. You're no longer the old person. You're the new person. The problem is, is that we have this old garment that we're unwilling to take off. We're not willing to take off that sinful nature. And here is why you sin. You sin. I sin because I love my sin. You sin because you love your sin. If it wasn't for you and me liking our sin... You know, if sin wasn't fun, it, it would be a bummer. I mean, if, if it was a bummer, I mean, nobody would want to do it. But sin is fun. And because we get caught up in that old sinful nature and that new nature, the, the, the new man inside of you was just begging to get out and become that glorious man that, that, and woman that God has created you to be. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, therefore, remember in verse 1, he says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, oh Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Calling is salvation. The calling is always the called in the epistles. Paul is always referring to the salvific call of one person becoming a new creation. You're not two, you're one. And, and when, when Paul is talking about becoming a new creation, he says, walk that way. You have to walk in the manner that, that God is. As a matter of fact, he says, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you. And as your pastor, I say the same thing. I plead with you and I beg you to walk the call, walk the worthy of the call. The walk of the old self. The walk of the old self, Paul is going to describe it here in these few verses. And the new walk that we are to be walking, the new walk that we are to be living in, the new walk is the walk, oh boy, let me see here. I didn't bring my notes, so I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to kind of wing it, no. 
I have, I have them here. Uh, yeah, I know. It happens. The walk, of the, new, the walk of the old self. We're going to start with the walk of the old self. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. And these are the notes that you have as well the, in your outline. And I'm going to read verses 17 through 24, then come back and go over the old uh, life and the old self, and then we're going to cover the new self. But in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17, and it's interesting because my Bible, it has on the captions right over the top of it, it says the new life. Amen? Are you with me there? Does your Bible say the same thing? It says, the new life. La nueva vida. Not la vida loca. Okay. It's la nueva vida. It's the new life, not the old life. You're not, you're not an old sinner anymore. Okay? You're not the old person. And in verse 17, it says this. But this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have, been, and have given themselves to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this Amen. portion of scripture that you give us. Amen. Lord, we are called to walk this new life. We are called to be these new people that you've created. And we're not the old. We are new. And because you have made us new, because you placed your spirit in our heart, because you have given us the power, this is a task that is accomplishable. We can do this because you gave us the power to do so. Amen. And I pray that this morning that we understand the advent, the invasion, the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, into this planet, what it means for us Amen. and how we can apply that to our life. Thank you, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the, in the King James Version, in verse 17, some of you might have, this I say, therefore. In the English Standard or some of your modern translations, he says, now this. Basically, using that word, therefore. And if you remember, I, I've always been told that every time you see the word therefore, or now this, or whatsoever, because of, then you should always stop and say, okay, what, because of what? Therefore, why is that word therefore? And what Paul had told us in verse 1, he says, this is who you are. You were dead in your trespasses. You were predestined. You were adopted. You were brought into the kingdom from the foundations of the world. You're already selected. You're already made new. And now what, what God had to do was to wake you up, place his spirit in your heart, and now you have become that new creation. It is by grace that you're saved, not by works, but it's a work of God. It's something that God himself had to do. And he goes and he teaches all for three chapters this doctrine. Now, he says, because of that. Therefore, he says, walk the worthy walk. And now he comes back and he says it again in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What God is saying is you're not that person anymore. You're not to hang out with those types of people anymore. You're not to act like those people do and did. That's, that's the old life. Do not do that. From this point forward, you're supposed to walk in the newness of life. 
Well, what is the newness of life? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what we try to teach is the newness of life, yeah. how it's supposed to be different. Yeah. You're, you're holy. Holy is set apart, not perfect, not pure. It's not the perfection of your life. It's the direction of your life. It's where are you walking? Where are you going to? And therefore, you must no longer walk as Gentiles. Gentiles, there was, for, the, for the Jewish person, there was only two groups of people. The Jewish people, God's chosen people, and everyone else. And so everyone else is Gentile. And so these are the ethnos, the people that were in that area, that lived in, 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 the, new, in the oldness of their life. And, and it's kind of like, you, you, don't, you probably have seen many things in today's culture and in today's world. You probably have, have looked at and, uh, some videos or some YouTubes, and you wonder, why do people do that? And I pray that that is catching your attention, because when you say, why do people do that? Don't they know? Don't they realize? And for the most part, they don't. Everything that Paul talks about here, as the Gentiles, and we'll talk about it here in just a little bit, everything that Paul talks about has to do with the mind, the thinking, the heart, the inside, the callousness of their heart, the darkness of their heart, the futility of their heart, of their mind. It's all futile. It's all, it's all, it's all wrapped around the way they think. And the more that a person thinks this way, the harder their heart gets until God breaks through and just opens it up. And it's, it just seems like in this culture, in our world, we, we find that this is happening more and more and more. People's hearts are getting harder and harder. And as I mentioned last week, there was a time when everything you'd have to almost figure it out. Oh, wow, that's, that's some bad stuff. You know, they're doing it in the dark. They do it behind the scenes. They do it, you know, in closed, behind closed doors. And, and they would get busted and people would see them and shame them because of their, their uh, immoral lifestyle. And now it's just in your face. It's like, you know, we don't even care. And it's even crept into the church. And inside the church, it, it doesn't even matter anymore. Uh, because, well, you know, God loves everybody. And he wants to include everyone. And we cannot stop and, and, and try to try to balance those things in life. God has a standard, and that standard is perfection. And perfection, I can't make it. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. Now, what I have to do is I have to follow what Jesus Christ has taught. And there are certain things that he says, and everything that he said, everything that was taught by the apostles, is what we must follow. Not like everybody else does. I read a post here just recently, and somebody said something to the effect of, tell me, tell us what, how you think the universe started. And there's like hundreds, if 500, 600 responses so far, you know, you know, from the time that I read it. And everybody starts up, well, I think, well, I believe. And the moment you are asked, what do you think? And the moment you respond, well, I think, you're, you're just, you're wrong. <laughs> Sorry to say that. I mean, unless it lines up with the Word of God. And if it lines up with the Word of God, then the response should be, well, the Word of God says... And my response would be, in the beginning, God. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. In the beginning, God. There's no explanation. There is no rationale or reasoning or logical form that you have to... Just from the very beginning, the first few words in the Bible says, in the beginning, God. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And there is no excuse. There is no argument. No way. Our church today 
We live in this kind of culture as, as the Ephesians did, as Paul was trying to get across in, in, in almost all the places out there. Ephesus was a very spiritual place. Let me tell you this. And they had this huge temple where everybody gathered. And it was the temple of Artemis or Diana, depending on if you read it in Greek or Roman. And Artemis is the place uh, that, that everybody gathered. They had this huge statue of the goddess Artemis, a vile, ugly-looking thing. It looked like half cow and half wolf, and it was dark and ugly, but people worshipped this thing. And people worshipped it, and not only did they worship this huge beast and statue, people came from all over the place to worship this thing. And it was a, a center of commonality. Everybody came, and, and they brought all their outside vices into this new religion, and they would give their monies. The, the place had a bank inside of it because they knew that nobody would try to rob the bank inside of the temple. And they would bring all their monies, and they would pay the priests and the priestesses. There were thousands of prophetesses that were there. They were temple prostitutes that you would pay to have sex with them. There were orgies throughout the whole place because this was part of their spiritual act of worship. They believed that if they did this with the priests or the priestesses, then what would happen is that they would be uh, blessed by the god of Artemis or Diana. And, uh, and, and so anything, everything went. Men had relations with men. Women had relations with women. And it was just going and going and going. There were, there were people there. In Acts chapter 19... Paul, Luke is describing the journeys of Paul. And if you ever want to see what Ephesus was like, and what you know, he'll tell you there that Paul went there and started to preach the gospel. And people started to uh, listen to the gospel. There were a few people, maybe a dozen, that had heard of Jesus Christ. And they heard through John the Baptist. And Paul asked them, you know, have you received the Holy Spirit? And they says, well, all we got is the baptism of John. Paul baptized them. They received the gift of speaking in tongues and prophesying, and then they moved forward. And you know where we stand with the gifts of prophesying in tongues. But what they, what they received was an authentication of what God was doing in their life. And people started to see these miracles that Paul had done. People would come by with these handkerchiefs and rub them against Paul, and, and, and they would take them to the people that were sick, and they would get well, and people would rise from the dead, and, and all these things that were going on, and people were coming to Paul, and they were saying, wow, this Jesus Christ that you proclaim is powerful. And the, the authenticating of God's power through Jesus had to be revealed as a matter of fact, there was these men, they were called the seven sons of Sceva. They wanted to do what Paul was doing, casting out demons. And so they went to this, this one man that was demon-possessed, and they went up to him and they started, you know, in the, name of the, in, in the name of Paul who preaches Jesus, we command you to come out. And this demon came up to them and they said, you know, Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? And they beat them up, you know, they ran out of their naked, the Bible says. This is Paul's authority. This is Paul's uh, presence because of what Jesus Christ was doing in their life, in Paul's life. And then what happened is that they started to hear the message in, in Ephesus. And, and people started to bring their books, their, their sorcery books. And they burned all these books. And it was a lot of money that they burned. And they said, you know, we're getting rid of all this witchcraft. We're getting rid of all this stuff. And they started to get rid of all their idols. And there was a guy named Demetrius. In Acts chapter 19, read this. Demetrius says, hey... Wait a minute. You know, they're taken away from our life. We make these idols. And he got the union together. He got those that were making idols. This Paul, he's preaching this Jesus, and they're not buying our idols anymore. It's hurting our economy. And so what started to happen is that they, they went up against Paul. A riot broke out, and, and uh, everybody was trying to get, you know, get their piece of the puzzle. And what ended up happening was that 
Paul got kicked out, the disciples got kicked out, and people stayed in this state. Their hearts were hardened. Their life kept going in the same direction. And they were, like I said, very spiritual with all these gods, with all this money, with all this uh, ideas of being able to get special knowledge, understanding from, from God, from the gods, because of this one goddess. And the whole town, this is where this little bitty church was at. This little bitty church in Ephesus was in this huge area of this cosmopolitan, of all these religions, out of all these spiritual acts of worship. And Paul says, I don't want you guys to act like that. Can you imagine these guys living and working and walking through the city, people looking at them, oh, you guys are the guys that follow that Christ guy, don't you? The guy that was crucified. You guys are part of the, that way, that, that group of people. You guys, and so they would get ridiculed. They would get laughed at. They would get beat up because of who they represented. Yeah. If you're a genuine believer, your presence is going to rock the boat in this culture, and it should. Our problem, the problem I see in a lot of people, is that they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to be persecuted. And instead, what they do is they walk as the Gentiles do. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Don't do it. Don't do it. As a matter of fact, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless adult idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and that they malign you. They laugh at you. They're, they're surprised because, well, hey, come on. Everybody's doing it. Even people in our church are doing it. Every, it's okay. You know, our, our pastor is, is okay with all this social justice. and He's okay with that. And Paul says, you're not supposed to do that. And then they're surprised. What? They are surprised. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. You know why it surprises them? It surprises a Gentile, a non-believer, that you will not join them because, wait a minute, didn't I just see you the other day telling some bad jokes? You know, didn't I just hear you saying some, didn't I just see you doing some stuff that was kind of questionable? And now you don't want to, wait, what happened? They are surprised because they assume you're like them. Paul says, don't do it. And then they malign you. They talk bad about you. On the basis of what we are in Christ and all that God now purposes for us as his redeemed and beloved children, we are to be absolutely distinct, different from the rest of the world, which does not know him or follow him. Spiritually, we have already left the world because we're, we're already in, in, in the presence of God. The only thing that's holding us back is this body. John says in 1 John, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Paul says, do not do that. And, he, and then he gives us a list. He gives us a list of what these Gentiles are like. Number one in your outlines, it's called feudal thinking. 
futile thinking. Futile meaning useless, worthless, uh, careless. It's, it's, they cannot think straight. It's self-centered, not, not God-centered. He says this. Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. The futility of their mind. Paul, you know, he, he, and he'll continue on the mind. He'll continue on the thinking. He'll continue it's talking to us about the, the, the way people think, the way people act. Their hearts are dark. Everything about them is, is their understanding uh, is, is, you know, it's built and bent toward the other way. When you're made new, all of a sudden, you kind of like snap out of it and says, whoa, <laughs> I used to do that. You know, I need to stay. Well, you know, if I stay away, people are going to make fun of me. Maybe if I just hang out a little bit with them. Maybe if I'm just on the outside, just, the, you know, just on the fringes. And I, I won't say and do th- things, you know, and if they say something funny, I'll laugh. And then when they're really going to do something bad, I'll just, you know, back off. Then they're going to get surprised and they're going to wonder, why aren't you participating? What do you think you are? A hallelujah? <laughs> a holy roller? What do you think you are? You know, you think you're more righteous than, than now or us? You, you think you're perfect? is the words that come out of their mouth. Because unbelievers and Christians, they think differently. We do. We think this, you know, that this world, people are trying to preserve this world. People are trying to save the planet. People are wanting to have this planet to last forever. The Bible tells us it's going to get destroyed. It's useless to try to prevent something that God is going to do. I mean, I'm not saying go out and trash the world either. You know, please pick up the garbage, put it away, throw it in the recycle and stuff like that. But, but to believe that you're going to protect and save this planet, it's futile. This is what I mean. It's futile to believe that, you know, that, you know, that, that, you know once now that you're married, you're, you're married for life. And, and you should stay committed and united in spite of what the other person is going with. And the Bible says that God hates divorce. And in spite of all of that, you know, I mean, people say, well, you know what? just going to do the other thing, you know, because it seems easier. It's better. God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? That's what I hear a lot. Doesn't God want me to be happy? No. No, he doesn't. God wants you to be holy. All right. You know, and, and when you pursue holiness, guess what happens? You get happy. <laughs> but see, when we pursue happiness, we become unholy, just like everybody else. It doesn't work the other way around. When you pursue holiness, God gives you the desires of his heart. God gives you love, joy, peace. And the world says, you know, just it's okay. We do it in our church. Everybody's getting divorced. And then we have singles parties. They're not singles parties. They're people that have been divorced and are hooking up with other people because, and we just go out and we'll have a singles Christmas party of all these divorced people. Beloved, it, it, that's the way the world, and it's infiltrated the church. The, the, the whole thing about unbelievers and believers, we, can't, we don't think the same. You know, divorce might not be, marriage might not be the greatest of things. And I'll tell you, both my wife and I, for the first five years, it was difficult. We became Christians, and then it got harder. <laughs> it, was, it was grueling. I says, all right, Lord, uh, I don't know how this works, but I thought we were supposed to get things worked out. And he says, yeah, I'm waiting for you to be a new person. I'm waiting for you to be different. So for the first 10 years of our relationship, it was pretty hard. Five, five as a believer. And, you know, by the grace of God, one day we went to this marriage conference and, you know, we just kind of surrendered. You know, Lord, we're done. I'm tired. I'm tired of this. And God says, okay, now I can start working on you guys. Amen. Coming up in February, 40 years. Amen. And she hasn't killed me yet. 
She promised a long time ago. She says, I'll never divorce you. Murder, maybe, but none. No, she didn't say that. It's, it's not the environment that turns a man into a criminal. It's, it's the choices that he makes. I mentioned here a while back to somebody that, you know, I had, I had a choice between psychology and sociology. Sociology is the study of societies on how people work and operate. And it's, it's been very beneficial for me. I get to see how all this stuff is kind of put, being put together, where it started from, the, you know, the Frankfurt School of uh, Thinking back in, in March and how it's all been implemented, where it started out even before that, in the Renaissance period, and even before that, and how it's all just coming to fruition now. And, you know, just, I had, a, I had a very good, I had very good teachers, godly teachers, and they taught me the, the truth. You know, they, they, we learned the books, we, we read the guys, and we read the stuff that these guys were putting out there. And, and, and we saw from firsthand what it was. And psychology, uh, sociology is the study of societies, but psychology is the study of the mind. In, in, and there is Christian psychology, by the way, and they, they believe that you can change a person's behavior by modified thinking, by think, modifying the thinking, modifying their behavior by doing certain cert, uh, exercises and such, which you can't. Your behavior, man's behavior, is centered on sin. We love our sin. The sin that you hold on to right now, the sin that you keep falling back on, the sin that you keep doing, the sin that is, has so much hold on you is because you like it. If you didn't like it, you wouldn't do it. That's just common sense. Paul says, the things I want to do, I cannot do. Why? Because I like my sin. I've got to stop with this arrogance and stop with this pride and stop with this anger and stop with all those things. And who's going to help me? And he says in chapter 8, you know, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to focus my efforts on Christ Jesus. You see, your sin and my sin are totally different. Your sin may not have any control over me. My sin might not have any control over you. It, it dominates my life. It dominates your life. And so we, we put that aside. When people are brought in to some rescue places and, and rescue homes, you know, the homeless, one of the first things they do is they rip off the old smelly garment and put on some new garments. The Bible says, rip out that old smelly, stinky garment. Yeah. Some of you keep going back and putting it back on, but it feels good. It's comfortable. I broke it in. Yeah, it stinks a little bit, but it still feels good. You know, yes, a brand new suit of armor, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, your helmet of salvation, your feet shod with the gospel of peace, which we'll be getting into here pretty soon. That, it's, it's, it's armor, and it might feel different, but you need to keep that armor on. The futility, the, 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 those that are in this world, it, it, they can't think that way because that's not the way they're programmed. They're programmed according to the world, according to the prince of the air. It refers to that which fails to produce desired results. I think somebody said in AA that, uh, you know, that, um, I, forget, I forget how they, they put it, but insanity. Insanity and this is basically what futility is. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. You know, I, oh man, maybe I can do it better this time. Maybe, you know, doing it the same way. No, you, you got to get rid of that stinking thinking and put your life back in the center of God. That's what futility is. Futility, having a futile mind is believing that all these things are going to work together for good if I can just keep doing it right. Just one more time. Maybe this time it'll work. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, the reason why the world thinks that way, Paul says, for although they know God, they did not honor Him as God. 
or grieve or give thanks to him, but they became futile, as it says so in your outlines. They became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. After a life of experiencing every world advantage and pleasure, the wisest, wealthiest, and most favored man of the ancient world, Solomon, concluded that everything that is out there, it's vanity. It's futile. I mean, I've, I've done it all. I've built castles. I've had horses. I've got many wives. You know, I mean, who, who'd want 400 wives? You know, I mean, it's, I don't know. 400 mother-in-laws? I, you know, okay. Solomon tried it, and he says, that's futile. All the pleasures of the world cannot compare with what God can give us. Number two in your outlines, darkened thinking. Darkened thinking. It's ignorance of God's truth. It's confused thinking. It's spiritually uninformed thinking. Thinking because you think, well, I believe. Well, I think. Or maybe I know. You know, I, 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 I. You know, who, 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 who died and ate you, God? You know, how, how is it that you know more than God? Well, this is just what I've been taught. This is what I've been learning. This is what I, you know, but that's not what the Bible says. Ephesians 4.18 says, they are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And that's the second characteristic. Ignorance of God's truth. And when you, have, when you don't have God's truth to line up everything else in this world, yeah, you're going to act like the rest of the world. Well, that seems innocent. That seems fun. The, the devil, the serpent, told Eve, you're not going to die. Come on. It looks good. It's pleasing to the eye, pride of life. It's pleasing to the flesh to eat, pride of the flesh, and the pride of life. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It looks good. I can see it. It, look, it tastes good. I bet. It feel, it'll fill my heart. And you know what? And it's just, I want to do it. I want to be like God. Because nobody can tell me what to do. Who does he think he is? God? Oh, yeah, he is. Nobody can tell me what to do because I'm going to do what I want to do. I have my own free will. You know what the Bible says about free will? Nothing. The Bible doesn't say anything about free will. As a matter of fact, when you are an unbeliever, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you are a slave to sin. Okay. That's it. You're, you don't have free will. You are a slave to sin. Okay. Like the Bible says in, in Timothy chapter two, 2 Timothy 3, it says, always learning and never able to, uh, to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning. Okay. Yeah, you know, but, but yet cannot comprehend God's truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts, Romans 121 says, were darkened. The more that you don't give God the glory and give it to yourself, the harder your heart gets. It's like there's a lion underneath a cardboard box and it breaks free easily. And you're trying to cover this sin with the cardboard box. And then you build a wooden crate. And this wooden crate is a little bit stronger, but you come to realize that that can't hold down your thinking, this lion. And then you finally, you build this cage and you surround it with cement, with high walls and a moat. And finally, nobody can get in and nobody can get out. That's the way humanity's thinking is. They have caged it up and their heart 
is so hard. And if you look at what God did to Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Finally, God just says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you a hardened heart. Yeah. The book of Romans in chapter one, they knew God. They, they, they knew who he was. And, and look, at, look at verses in your outlines in verses 22 and 23. It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They looked and they saw, yes, that's God. But you know what? Eh, you know, I want to worship the creation, not the creator. I can control creation. I can control my environment. I can control all those things around me. But God is uncontrollable. You know, I, I can't control him. He's got, he's got his way, the standard way up here. I can't do that. So I will create my own God. And I'll call it Mother Earth. I'll call it my own self-will. I'll call it whatever it is that you want to call it. But there's only two, beloved. There's only two. Because of their hardening of their hearts. It's, you know, a corpse. It's what it is. A body is just, you know, when you're, when you're dead in your sin, it's just a corpse. Yeah. You cannot have a conversation in the mortuary with a dead person. Right. They're dead in their trespasses. The word hardness of their heart, it, it carries this idea of being rock hard. It comes from the Greek uh, process, uh, excuse me. Porosis is the, the, the term that is used in, in a medical terminology where, where the bones calcify. When the bone breaks, it says it is known that the, when the, wherever the bone breaks, this calcification takes place around it and this porosis takes place and that part of the bone gets harder than the actual bone itself. People with this darkened thinking, that's exactly what happened. They get this porosis of the heart and it hardens the heart and it hardens the heart and it hardens the heart where nobody can get in. Number three, calloused thinking. Calloused thinking. Spiritually and morally callous hardening. They have become futile. They have become callous in their thinking. Verse 19. And this is, this is they've become callous. In, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You, you know, and some people think, well, you know, I'm not going to get into that kind of stuff. I'm not going to follow any kind of demonic, you know, presence. And, and I want you to know something, beloved, and I, I share this with you with all sincerity. Satan, Satan's picture is not that of a demon with fangs and hooves and, and uh, these horns and you know that's that's not Satan. the bible says that he's lucifer that's his name shining star he's a bright angel he was one of the most beautiful angels had all, all the characteristics of the beautiful jewels satan is not going to come to you in this red uniform long tailed pitchfork and he's not going to say to you give me your heart Give it to me so I can just rip it out. Let me just come in there and rip it out. And let me just chew up your heart and destroy your life. Destroy your marriage. Destroy your children. Let me just destroy everything about you. And when I'm dead and when you're dead and gone, I'll just cast you in the pit of hell. Let me do that to you. Satan is not going to come to you that way. He comes with deceiving spirits. Look, you can connect with God in the same way that I do. You can have whatever you want. 
You can be as free. You don't need a church. You don't need a pastor. And you know what? There's a lot of people like that over at this church. Just come on over here and learn how to be a better you. I can show you how to be a better you. I have pastors and I have teachers and I have all these people that they just want you to feel good. I can show you how to do that. I can show you how to to just just listen to them. They might ask you for some money, but hey, it's worth it. They might they might want you to, you know, join their clubs and join. But but you know what? That's what you need to be. What the word of God says is totally the opposite. You are to crucify yourself. It's you no longer live. Jesus Christ lives in you. You are to carry your cross daily and follow him. You are to be separate from the world. And this is what Paul is getting at. He says, you know, there are these deceiving spirits. He's telling Timothy, the spirits, once again in your outlines. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times, right now, in later times, this is the later times, some will depart from the faith. They were in the faith. They were studying the word of God. They were understanding what God wanted of his people. They were believing and reading the word of God. And what they did is they departed from it by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits. And then they began teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are so seared that they really believe they know what they're talking about. But where does it say that in the Bible? Oh, no. I, you know what? I got a new revelation. I got a new revelation. I had a gentleman in our church one time that says, you know, you, you know that you have, your angel is around you. How do you know? Because I can smell him. You can smell the angel. Yes, mine smells like butterscotch. I go, really? I go, where'd you read that at? Would you be, where, where in the Bible? Oh, it doesn't say so in the Bible, but that, I know that. I know that. Okay. <laughs> You cannot go like that. That's not what the Bible teaches. Yet, that's exactly what he's trying to teach some of our people. Titus tells us in, in, first, in Titus chapter 1, it says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Amen. They are detestable, disobedient, yeah. unfit for any good work. They profess to know God, but their life shows something different. They, they say, God, they say, I, oh, I know Jesus, you know, but, and, and he knows me. You know, he's, I'm a work in progress. Yeah, I can do whatever I want, right? I'm saved already. Once saved, always saved. They become darkened in their thinking. Number four, depraved in mind. Depraved in mind. The, depravity. Depravity is being so sinful, so... Uh, licentiousness is the word that comes up. Immoral, shameless, depraved, you know, not caring. You know, so what? Some people are deceived and some people just do it straight out. The absence of any moral restraints, especially in the area of sexual sin. This is the area where it was just very prominent in 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 Ephesus. Sexual sin was just out there. Everybody had sex with whoever they wanted to. And it was all done within the confines of a spiritual organization. And it was done in that sense. We can do this. Uh, one commentator, uh, he, he terms this and relates it a disposition of the soul, incapable of bearing the pain of discipline. You know, you can't discipline a person that doesn't feel they did anything wrong. You just can't feel it. Sensuality characterized the people that Peter describes. Once again, Peter in 2 Peter says this, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defile, defiling passions, 
and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. This is a very sad state of affairs. When we have women basically killing their babies and call it legal, fighting for the right to do so. The, the worship of Molech in the Old Testament was exactly that. They sacrificed their babies. They would put them in these huge bellies of these beasts that they would create of, of uh, brass, and they would build a fire up underneath them. They would put them all in there, and they would basically steam the babies to death. They had this god of Molech that would have, have his arms out like this in, in such a way that they would put the babies up on them, and they would roll them into the fire. And they would think that this is something that they were offering to their god. Today, millions of abortions have happened because it's a woman's right to choose. Very little time do, you, do we have now that you know, the end is going to come. It seems to be the one thing that most, a lot of people just want to hold on to, and I, I can't understand it. The, the sin of pedophilia now has become so prevalent in a lot of the Hollywood uh, movie stars, and it's, the, it's, it's this idea of being able to live a longer life. When you abuse a child, you can live longer. It has that ability in the, to, to, to make your life last longer with the blood of a child, with the, with the rape of an innocent child. This, this whole worship of, of the, this culture and of these things and everything else that's within them, and it gets worse. It doesn't just start off as this one sin. It starts off with just, yeah, it's, it's okay. It's like an alcoholic. With an alcoholic, you ask an alcoholic, how many beers does it take to be an alcoholic? And he'll always, he'll always respond, one. That's it. It's always just the first one because then it's two. How, does, how do you get to that point of licentiousness where it's just like it doesn't matter? Well, it starts off in, in a very, you know, just simple and innocent tweet, a page. You know, just, I'm just looking. And it goes to the next level until eventually it, it is so out of control that you have to keep going higher and higher and higher. And little, little do a lot of people know, I, I used to be a drug user, and it's exactly the way it started with me. Drugs and alcohol, you just start off with, with one hit. Yeah. One line, That's and it. all of a sudden, you're just about moving up, and you're That's finding it. yourself in this rabbit hole that you can't get out. Sin is the same thing. And we have to recognize it. This is why the world cannot think of this. The rapid increase of this mental illness today can be laid in large measure at the feet of this increased sensuality of every sort. This greediness for wanting to feel good. Wanting to have all that you can get. And man is made for God and designed according to his standards. When he rejects God and his standards, he destroys himself in the process. And little by little, as you remove the godness within you, and the more that you harden your heart and get more of the sensuality, the harder and harder it is for you to come back. Not saying that God will not do a miracle as he did in my life and maybe in some of your life as well. So true. But when you reject God, your standards, they become to get destroyed. The corruption of our present society are, are, are not the result of psychological or sociological circumstances, but the result of personal choice. Nobody did this to me. Nobody made me do this. 
Nobody caused it to happen. I chose sin because sin was fun. If it was a bummer, I would not have done it. You choose sin because it's fun. If it was a bummer, you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be around it. All these perversions that take place, these lying, cheating, stealing, murder, all these things that happen, every other type of moral degeneration, homosexuality, sexual deprivation, sexual perversion, all these things, they start off by one simple choice. And you become calloused in your way of thinking and you spread callousness to those that are closest to you. And it becomes harder and harder to get out. Paul says in Ephesians 4.19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensual, sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Because after a while, this impurity is not good enough. They got to get to the next level and to the next level. Practicing this business enterprise. In Paul's day, there was an enterprise of, of, of making these things happen. You know, if, these, if this church that they had in Ephesus wasn't making the money that it was making, it would not have lasted. It would not have kept going. It would not have kept growing. And this, this worship of Artemis, this worship of, of this deity that they had spread. People would come from miles just to be a part of this worship, this euphoria, this crazed uh, babbling and all the stuff that was going on inside of this temple. They would just come for miles and they would cast their monies at the feet of these prophets and priests and, and they would just enjoy themselves because that's what everybody did. Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Impurity. Greediness. There's so much more to say about that. I mean, but I think you get the picture. What Paul is saying, what Paul was saying to the people of Ephesus, he's saying to us right now in Southern California, to the world. He's saying the same exact thing, and we can see it unfolding before our eyes. Do not be like the rest of the world. If you love the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. That's just bottom line. That's why we have to take a moral inventory and look at our life. Why am I still holding on to that? Why do I want to continue doing that? Is it because I cannot get away? I do not want to get away? Or I will not get away? If you can see it, if you sense it, if you know that there's something wrong, the Holy Spirit is pulling you and asking you to let go of this world. You see, we have all offended a holy God. And it's only by the blood of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned from the very beginning, Christmas cannot be seen without the cross. The cradle is is such a beautiful thing, but it has to be seen in the shadow of the cross. And the cross was the whole purpose of Christmas. Now, we've taken Christmas and we've perverted it into this holiday that, that, you know, it's just nothing but spending money and and making money and and, and just enjoying ourselves. These holiday parties that that people get drunk and hook up with people and, and food and just all this stuff. We lose the whole picture. Of the cross. We got to keep the cross in the center of the whole thing. You know, and and that's that's how we do this. That's we keep the cross in there during Christmas. And the only way you can do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have not yet committed your life to Christ right now, let today be the day of salvation for you. Repent. Repent from that life that you're living. Repent from this world. Repent and turn to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that on the day when Jesus Christ returns, you will not stand under the wrath of God. 
Repent and turn. That's not a suggestion. I'm not begging you to, to make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. You know why? Because he's already the Lord of your life. I'm not asking you to make him master of the universe because he's already the master of the universe. I'm not asking you to glorify him, make him bigger, because he's already glorified. You need to repent and recognize that you haven't been doing that in your life. You need to do that today. And you walk the new walk. When you come back next week, we're going to go over the new walk. We're going to see how it really just unfolds to those that are, uh, th- that are His. Just like I mentioned with my marriage, it was difficult. It's hard because we had, I had to get rid of a lot of things that I wanted to do. She had to get rid of a lot of things she wanted to do. And when you become a Christian, you got to get rid of a lot of things that you want to do. Your marriage to Christ is the most important part of all eternity because you are the bride of Christ. Let me ask you to stand. To celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to partake of what we call the Lord's table. And let me just share a couple of things with you before we do so. Now, I've always stated, and I got to make, I got to make a, I got to clarify this. I've always stated that if you have not yet been baptized according to the Spirit, uh, according to the Bible, that you refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to be baptized, excuse me, to, be, to take the Lord's Supper. You can take the Lord's Supper anytime you want. Okay? You can. But I must warn you. The reason I say that is because once you've decided to be baptized, I will walk you through what the baptism means. I will walk you through what the Lord's Supper means. And, and you'll have an understanding. The portion of scripture that I generally read is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I usually read from verses 22 to 26. And then right after verse 26, when he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In verse 27, and I've never really, I mean, I shouldn't say I never, but I don't usually you know, expound on this, but I need to today. It says here, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Amen. Let a person examine himself then. Amen. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks and judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the wicked. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give direction when I come. So in essence, need to examine yourself. The reason I ask you to be baptized is not, that's, that's, that's not a requirement. I ask you for the, to be baptized so that you can understand what it is that you're doing. Because if you do this without any understanding, it's not going to give you anything. The bread doesn't give you any... Uh, any, any special blessing. And in, in this instance, it's a wafer. But the wafer is just a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ, of the body of Jesus Christ. The, the wafer does not turn into the body of Christ. It's symbolic of the body of Christ. The wafer symbolizes, some people believe that there, that there is transubstantiation where it transforms, literally transforms into the body of Christ. 
as you eat it. And that the juice literally transforms into blood. It doesn't. The Bible doesn't teach that. This is a symbol. Jesus said, this is my body. This is not his literal body. And people take that literally. It's symbolic. Just like he said, I am the door. Jesus Christ was not a door. You know, it says, I am the vine. He wasn't have vines crawling out of him. This is a symbol of his body. And if you've been to one of our Seder suppers, you'll know exactly where this comes from. And so when you understand that this is not adding anything to you, uh, it's, it's, it's also not adding anything to you, then you understand that you're doing this in obedience of what he said. And we need to do this in a reverent manner. And also, don't do it if you're hungry. You know, it's not going to fill you, first of all. And if you're hungry, please stick around. My wife made this amazing clam chowder. And you know, I haven't even tasted it, but I already know it's amazing. We want you to stick around for some, some lunch with us. And we're going to try to do this through the month of December that you enjoy this fellowship with us. So with that said, I want you personally to examine yourself. Amen. And we're all sinners. Amen. Confess. Amen. Repent right now. Amen. Repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because, Father, you are the one that sent Jesus Christ yes. to this planet. We celebrate this season as Christmas. We celebrate it with all this commercialism. But God, help us to get rid of that commercialism and focus on Christ. Yes, commercialism is not going to save us. The cross is what saves us. And Father, we pray that you help us to think differently than the world. We saw outlined here that Paul had put for us, forth for us to see what, it, what the world looks like, what the world thinks, what the world does. Lord, we no longer are part of that world. We are new creations. And because of this wafer and this juice, as we take it, we remember the price that it cost for us to be new creation. So help us to take this in a worthy manner. Lord, we don't we cannot afford to have more people get sick or even die. And I pray that you help us all to grow together. So, Lord, as we take this together, we do this in reverence and in honor of who you are. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul said to the people in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
We're going to pray, give thanks, then break it and do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. And when we crack the, when I say amen and we crack the bread, the cracking of the bread help it to remind you of the lashings that Jesus Christ took for us as it echoes throughout this building. Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for this wafer that represents the body of Jesus Christ. We know that it doesn't transform into anything. We know that it doesn't give or add anything to us. And I pray that each one that has received this has, is taken it in a worthy manner. Lord, we know that we have much room still for improvement. But we come before you humbly, repenting of our sin, so that we can grow closer to you. Thank you for this wafer and what it represents. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father in heaven, thank you once again for this juice that represents the blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Its color, its consistency helps us to remember the blood that was shed on the cross. So, Father, we pray that you uh, bless this juice and the vine that it came from as we all take together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord, once again for this hour of worship, this time of gathering. I pray that you bless our food that we're about to partake of and the fellowship that we, that we join together, that we enjoy, Father, this time of fellowship, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen. All right, let's mosey on over. Amen.